como 10 minutos. Okay. Nada más que eso y de ahí viene el, el, el sendero nuevamente de unos 3, 4 metros de ancho. Welcome to another edition of Strangers Abroad. This podcast is a series of conversations with the wonderful and weird people I met while backpacking throughout Latin America. These are the hitchhikers, the couch surfers, and the expats, the thrill seekers, the mountain climbers, the volunteers, and society quitters. The people who, for one reason or another, made the decision to challenge themselves, to leave behind the comforts of home, to venture out into the world, and see what happens. Here we go. Graham Hughes is a man who needs little introduction. I met him in Bocas del Toro, off the coast of Panama at an island bar that was half on land and half in the ocean. It had large wooden swings with which you could propel yourself right into the salt water, climb back up, and take a shot. I was chatting with a group of fellow travelers and couldn't help but notice Graham pretty quick. As I mentioned before, I'm a sucker with anyone with a British accent. I watched him out of the corner of my eye. He had this weird air of Indiana Jones sporting a wide-brimmed stable fedora that stayed on his head as he reenacted some of his adventures. He is a man who is too overloaded to finish a story, telling one halfway through and then tangenting to another story which reminded him of something else that happened to him in another country that I don't know, it just goes on. So as I was watching him, I was like, what is this guy's deal? And as he walked away to go get another drink, a girl who was standing in our circle was like, you know he's been to every country, nonchalantly. What? Yeah, and he like owns his own island or something. What the f I didn't have time to finish my sentence because I immediately broke into a sprint looking for him. When I found him, he was sitting close to the water's edge, chatting up some other Englishmen talking about football or something. And I stepped over the drunk tourist splashing the ocean onto the bar and belligerently singing Katy Perry. And I waited, patiently. I needed to know if this was true without coming off as a total creeper. When he finally turned his attention to me, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I started picking his brain about travel and going to every country. And I mentioned my podcast and that I wanted to share stories of fascinating people I met on the road. And I'll never forget the look he gave me as he peered at me under his glasses, hat tilted forward, asking, do you know who I am? pausing dramatically to reinforce his travel celebrity. Nope, I said. I mean, I had heard about you here, and I just wanted to know if it was true. Well, it's all true, he said. I hold the Guinness World Record for traveling to every single country without flying. Shit, I thought. This guy is no amateur. I asked, maybe begged for an interview. And he, as a travel celebrity, could have easily said no. But I'll give you an interview, he said, because you and I share an understanding of the importance of stories, which is the secret word. I'll let him explain the rest. Here's a story. So, whew, all right, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, I'm busy at the moment. How long did you stay in each country? Like, what was the shortest amount of time that you stayed in a country? And then what was the longest? 
Uh, the shortest amount of time was um, <laughs> Vatican City, um, which, to be fair, the night before I did walk around the entire country. But fair enough, it is the smallest country in the world. But, um, you know, it's a good walk. Uh, and then, because it was closed, because when I got there, it was closed. I didn't know they closed it at night, but they closed St. Peter's Square. Um, and then I came back the next morning at 7 a.m. and I ran into St. Peter's Square. Um, and I'm in Vatican City, and that was it. I ran back out again. I probably spent a whole total of about two minutes <laughs> in Vatican City. Um, other countries I spent a lot of time in. In Cape Verde, famously, I, I turned up on a fishing boat with some fishermen, and they thought I was a people smuggler. So they uh, threw us all in jail for a week, and then they wouldn't give me my passport back, and I needed it to go to any of the other well, nine islands in, in the in the island chain of Cape Verde, and, and and I couldn't get to the marina. There's a marina on another island where all the boats are, all the yachts. That I would have been able to talk to a yachty and say, hey, can you can you take me back to Africa? So I ended up spending about six weeks all in in Cape Verde. So yeah, there were, there were countries that I really did just rattle through, especially in Europe. I mean, uh, I did seven countries in one day when <laughs> I was oh racing through the Balkans, whereas places like in West Africa, I ended up spending a few days in each country just because I needed a visa to get to the next country. It was it was essentially dictated by visas and shipping. Yeah, I spent three weeks in Gabon and I joined a Bwiti tribe while I was there, who this people who, they, they eat this uh, hallucinogenic tree bark you're supposed to hallucinate and things like this, but you have, I think you have to consume a lot of it for it to really touch the sides. And I, I, I had a taste. It just tasted like powdered tree bark, you could imagine. Um, but I think it's like peyote or something. You've got to kind of do it as part of a ceremony, and it, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to take a lot of it to to have any major effect. Right. Have you done any type of hallucinogens or ethnogenetic? plants or experiences while you were abroad no not no not at all i mean uh, traveling around the world and, and just living like the way i do right. i mean i've never really been enamored with sort of getting off my head in that in that kind of way i think there's enough enough of the world to explore but i think at the same time especially with long-term travel you know you get high off the world and all of it yeah, like I, I I definitely do that, and I, I was writing. Uh, I wrote an article the other day just for my own blog, which was the you know twenty tracks that I love to listen to when I'm I'm traveling. And one of them, I was just saying, you know, it, it it's it's that feeling when you're in a filthy ass bus station, you're choking on fumes. It's four in the morning. You're thinking, what the hell am I doing? Yep. But you get that kind of you get this kind of weird feeling of elation and and adrenaline and. Oh my God! I'm going on an adventure. Yes. I'm up at this time of the day because there's adventure in the air and a lot of pollution. But there's adventure. There's somewhere I'm going, and I don't know what's waiting for me. And and I I, I love that. And I love have always felt the call of the of the unknown. You know, I don't want to ever stop traveling. I'm getting such itchy feet here in in Panama. Um, there's a lot of places in the world. I, I want to go. Uh, a lot of places I want to return to. And I know that feeling, like that exact feeling of like, you know, a huge backpack and at least for on, on like the lady end of it, like having a big backpack, like 
not wearing a bra or any makeup and getting on a bus at a crazy hour, but you just feel so alive. It's like I'm doing something out of the ordinary and something is going to happen and I don't have any cares about it and I'm just going with it. And it's, 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 there's nothing that kind of like compares to it. How has travel augmented your like perception of time? What I love about it is looking back, you can pick out the days. Now I tell you, when I'm working back home in Liverpool, you know, pretty much days run into each other. And what else it does, which is a real great kind of mental illusion, it kind of stretches time for me and allows me to do, you know, when I look back and go, wow, I packed in all that in the week. That's insane. It's a really glorious feeling. It's, it's kind of like you're, you're winning, you know? Right. Well, oh, let's talk about time because, man, that shit changes when you're abroad. <laughs> it's really amazing on how you leave your routine, but you're so much more in this state of flow and yeah. time passes more quickly. And it does pass cognitively. It does pass faster for adults because we have more memory and less space for it. So, whereas children, you know, like minutes drip by in like second period class. But when you're traveling, it's totally different. Like the the living by this 24 hour clock kind of, it kind of evaporates and you just completely lose track of time until you're like, oh shit, I have to catch this bus at 4.30. And also, Another great thing about traveling, it's just so damn inspirational. And if you're looking for stories and you're, you're trying to come up with ideas and, and, and formulate narratives in your head, it's like manna from heaven because there's always something random going on. And you don't get that living in a city, living in an apartment, going to work every day. It's not the same. And you can just become inspired by so many just random things. You could just be in a bar watching a, a, a live band play somewhere in Swaziland or something and think of a fantastic idea just, just because of something triggers something in your head. And that's something that I always felt when I was traveling. I, I was, it was a really creative time for me. I came up with some fantastic ideas for feature films, for TV shows, for books, for creative projects, for video games, and it was more to do with just absorbing all these different things that were all going on all at once. The sight, the smell, the sound, the food, uh, the music, right. and, and, and sort of weaving these into rich kind of tapestries that, that allow you to tell an interesting story you know, a fictional story, perhaps, or even a true story, but uh, brilliant. And I would recommend it to anyone who's, A, suffering from writer's block, or B, desperately seeking their, their, their other half. <laughs> because I always feel like getting out there and seeing the world, you're going to meet people who are willing to help you along the way, who are definitely more on your wavelength than you're, you could hope to meet just staying at home and, you know, meeting a lot of people with that kind of village mentality of not going out and seeing the world, right. not being very accepting of other people and the ways right. that they are. And But as I said earlier, it's not for everybody. If I don't want to force people <laughs> to take a grotty bus around Africa if it's really something they don't want to do. Absolutely. Oh my God. I have like four questions for you, like at the same time. So since you're, since we're on the topic of, you know, travel isn't for everybody, 
Do you think that there's a personality type for people who are, who thrive off of travel? You know, like, are there any consistencies that you've seen in other travelers that maybe you see in yourself or that you think someone can thrive as a long-term traveler? Because it does take a very specific type of person. I think the main thing is that you have to, you know, people talk about being open-minded. I don't think that's a requirement for traveling. I think that's something that can come while you're traveling. But um, I think that one of the main sort of things is is it, it's people who, who, who aren't into routine, who, who don't necessarily have to wake up at the same time every day and f- to feel safe. And also uh, people who don't mind slumming it. I think that's the main thing. You don't get too stressed out when things go wrong. I think they often will when you're on the road. And I've got friends who have been backpacking and just not enjoyed it. I've got friends who never thought they'd go backpacking and then they've gone and then absolutely adored it and haven't stopped since. And I think, yeah, probably that, that tolerance level of not freaking out too much when things go, go a bit pear-shaped. But also, I think Mark Twain originally said it, if internet memes are to be believed, uh, which are probably not, but, you know, about travel being fatal to prejudice. And I think that if if you are prejudiced, if you if you really are that terrified of black people or Muslims or Jews or women or whatever, then it's going to be difficult to get people, those type of people traveling. However, if they do travel, I think it can help them see the world in a whole new light because it's a lot harder to be misogynistic, to be racist, to be anti-Semitic, to be Islamophobic, when you've got friends from these countries who are awesome and you love them and you chat with them all the time on Facebook. I mean, it's, it's just not something you can do. You know the people who say, a lot of my friends are black and then say something racist. No, they don't really have any black friends. They have black people who might tolerate them because <laughs> uh, they have to work with them, but they're not really their friends. Because right. if you did have friends, from other ethnic backgrounds, you wouldn't say things like that. Exactly. You know, even if you have one black friend or you have a friend that's gay, that doesn't that doesn't justify that you're allowed to say something that is homophobic. Exactly. Or... It's, a, it's an incredibly frustrating thing. But a, a kind of what I appreciate about it is in the, in the back of of people like that's head, they're thinking being homophobic's not right. They know it's not right. And that's why they try and justify it. That's why they try and say, I'm not a racist, but... And they, or they say, you know, I've got friends who are gay, but... Because they know what they're doing is wrong. Right. So that's progress. When you meet someone who literally just comes out with this stuff, with no qualms or qualifications whatsoever, you kind of like, wow, you don't meet that many people like that when you're traveling. Absolutely. Maybe in villages in the UK or in small town America but uh, out there in, in the big bad world, which I don't think is that bad, you, you, you'd be hard pushed to meet people who have that same kind of small-mindedness. Right. So it's do you, petty, isn't it? It's just petty. It's very petty. So do you find that, and it seems as though they're also the types of people that, uh, this is my own assumption or observation, that um, it's people who kind of get wrapped up in media hysteria. At least in America, the news is a form of entertainment. So, and a lot of people get, you know, when I told people I was going to Mexico, I know that there were people who were like, 
I'll probably never see you again because they have this awful perspective of like what Mexico is. And I'm like, no, Mexico is definitely one of my favorite, is probably one of my favorite countries if there were such thing as favorites. So the media very much skews and creates a lot of hysteria around the world. What has your, have your experiences contradicted that or has there been anything kind of confirming in, in that? No. What what I've found is two main things. First of all, if you get your view of the world exclusively from the media, and I'm going to include the internet with that because in you know Facebook, social media, the way it's set up, it just becomes an echo chamber. If you are right wing, you'll have lots of friends who are right wing, and you'll all confirm your own biases. If you're left wing, you'll do exactly the same, and it's hard to get out of that echo chamber. Traveling allows you to go and see the world for yourself and see that the world isn't such a bad place and, and gives you a much more grounded sense of perspective. Yes, it's awful. Of course it's awful when a terrorist atrocity like the one that happened today in, in Belgium happens. It, 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 it's, it's diabolical and we should be sad and we should be angry about it and we should do everything in our power to stop it happening in the future short of killing some innocent people that's not going to actually achieve anything. Now, when it comes to telling people this, it's very, very difficult to say, look, you've got to see it from this point of view. Yes, you read these bad things in the, in, in the media, but what you don't read are all the not bad things that have happened around the world because they don't get reported on. It's as simple as that. You don't get a news report coming out that says, do you know what, everything was fairly pleasant today in Rwanda. You, you never hear that. It's difficult to find even... So just good news stories, especially about countries in Central Africa or right. South America or, or in uh, Southeast Asia. You know, they're just, just people are just being nice to each other right. and helping each other out. Right. That doesn't get into the that doesn't get into the media sphere. And so yes, I can understand that if you just stay at home and you just get your information from the media, from the internet, then you're you're gonna have a bit of a, a skewed view of the world. But the fact is that we, at the moment, we human beings are the least likely, the ones of us who are alive right now, are the least likely to die a violent death in the history of humanity. There are fewer wars going on now than have ever been in the history of mankind. You know, we look back at the 20th century. It was, a, it, was an, it was an era of just total bloodshed pretty much all the way through. Things aren't great. Things aren't perfect by any means. What's happening in Syria and Iraq is, 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 and, and Libya and, and Eritrea is absolutely heartbreaking. But at the same time, there's no open conflicts going on in Latin America at the moment. Maybe the Mexican drug war, but that's kind of held within a certain sphere. If you're a traveler, if you're a backpacker traveling through Mexico, unless you're stupid enough to be going there to buy heroin, you're probably going to be all right. Yeah. And the other thing that I wanted to say, the other, the other truism, I guess, that, that I picked up when I was traveling very, very quickly is this. You can't judge people by the actions of their governments. You just can't. If the Americans vote in Trump, which I don't think they will, but they might, they vote him in next November, that doesn't mean that all, all Americans are xenophobic, racist, misogynistic idiots. Maybe a portion of them are, but that's not everybody. And the people who get these terrible, terrible leaders, like Gaddafi, like Mugabe, like Saddam Hussein, like George W. Bush, don't necessarily deserve those leaders. 
I don't believe in this thing of collective punishment of let's do a sanction against a country in order to punish the leaders. The leaders don't care. They live in palaces. All sanctions do is hurt the people. And so when a country, in inverted commas, does a bad thing, we need to step away and say, hang on, is that the country or is that the government? And right. if it's the government, and especially if it's a government that no one voted for, that no one really wanted in, or a president in, in, in Latin America or Africa who's been in charge for 40 years and no one can get rid of, that's not fair and that's not right. The idea that um, a country is a bad country, like, say, Iran has been tarred by the Western media really badly over the last 30 years because, what, it had a few bad leaders. But you know the last bad leader that everyone got upset about, Ahmadinejad, who, fair enough, he was a bit of a lunatic, and he wasn't a very nice man. He got voted out by a democratic election, which was hardly reported on by the Western media. It was a democratic process, and now they have another president who's fairly okay. So they were the two main things that I picked up on my travels. Absolutely. Um, you know, don't judge a country by its government, and don't get all your information from the internet and from the media because you'll get a very skewed perspective of the danger of the world. The world isn't that dangerous. Absolutely. Be sensible, but... I have two things to, like, go on that. One is a quote from this... Uh, I can't pronounce her name, but she's an Iranian graphic novelist, and she quotes, the difference between between you and your government is much bigger than the difference between you and me. And she's talking to an American, and I'm like, ugh. That, like, totally sums everything up because the individuals that you meet along the way are also just kind of, like, looking for their basic amenities, you know, like, I want to have a house and, like, eat a good meal, you know, have clean clothes, yeah. go to work. Yeah. We all kind of have the same prerogatives. You know, and, um, yeah, our aspirations are very similar all over the world. Everyone just really... They want to be liked, they want to be happy, and they want right. to be safe. They want friends. Of course, yep. being happy and safe requires decent health care, requires shelter for people, it requires looking after people who have disabilities or injuries. Right. And, and that's something that, you know, even, even the most developed countries in the world sometimes struggle with. But I feel like the, the idea that... Like I said earlier, if you can punish an entire country because of the, the idiocy that the government's getting up to, it's very frustrating. It's a very simplistic way of seeing the world. And the world is beautiful, but it's, it is quite complex. It's and complex. the relationships between the governments of, of the world are something that, you know, we as just, you know, average people don't really have much of a say in. Well, I was going to say, before you took your trip and I think at the same time you might have like a slight advantage being born in England because you have access to so many different countries at your fingertips in comparison to Americans or Canadians or Australians you know people who have a diverse country but don't have as easy access to other countries do you find how do you find that your perception of the world shifted once you went to every country like what was something that kind of surprised you that you weren't anticipating that you learned? And I feel like that is kind of a big question, but... I think that, that to go back to, to what you were saying in your first point there, was, yeah, being born in the UK was an incredibly 
you know, looking back, an incredibly privileged position for me. And I'm a white male as well. And I, you know, when I hear these, my, my, my fellow tribe of white males bellyaching about feminazis and about Mexicans taking their jobs and about people getting free college grants and they don't get it, I'm like, come on, stop this. We have to stop this. If you're born a white male in an English-speaking country, you've been dumped at the finish line of life. All you need to do is crawl over the damn thing. Mm. And to pretend that isn't the case is kind of, it's, it's offensive. It's offensive to people who have had to struggle, who have had to fight for the right to get married, to, to vote, to be accepted as a citizen, to not be a slave. So for, it, it, for me, it, being born into the privilege that I have is something that I really do not take lightly. And I don't, I'm not saying this to say, you know, oh, aren't I great just because of an accident of birth. That's not what it's about. It's about with, with the privilege that I've got that comes responsibilities and it's my responsibility uh, as I feel like as a, as a, as a white English speaking male to let the very least I can do is learn about the struggles and the hardships and the shit that people all over the world have had to get to get get through you know to get a, a quarter of the stuff that I was just born with right and that to me is is it's a powerful message and I wish more people would realize this so as far as that is concerned yeah you know I, I realize I am privileged I'm also privileged because I grew up in Liverpool this great little rock and roll town uh, in, in northern England and I was 30 minutes from Wales which is another country they speak a different language they have a different cuisine they have a different culture you know the, the, the street signs are in a different language um, and, and that was normal for me and as a child, um, I was taken on these rather wonderful camping trips around Europe with my, my family. And we went to all the little crazy countries like Liechtenstein and Andorra and Monaco, um, just, you know, to, to take them off the list, really. I and mean, that's sort of where I got my um, <laughs> bit of my wonderlust for um, ticking the countries off. I remember one particular time, it was in the summer, I think it was either 1988 or 1989, wasn't long before the wall came down, the Berlin Wall, and we drove, we were in West Germany, and my dad drove us to the border point with East Germany, and asked if he could go across, and the border guard said, have you got a visa? He said, no, uh, but you know, Glasnost, Perestroika, can we come in? And the border guard said, no, you can't, and asked us to turn around the camper van. But while we were doing the U-turn, we were actually in East Germany. My dad was so excited. He's like, hey guys, we're in East Germany. We're behind the Iron Curtain. And we were behind the Iron Curtain for maybe 10 seconds. And then we went back out into West Germany. And then uh, a couple of years later, in the summer of 1990, so this is about six months after the wall had come down, we went to Berlin and uh, we drove there, which is amazing because you, you, for the last, for the previous 30 years, you couldn't drive to Berlin. You just couldn't do it. You had to fly in if you wanted to go to West Berlin. And we drove there, and I still had my piece of the Berlin Wall that I chipped off myself as an 11-year-old kid. And we went to places that I couldn't even pronounce, never mind spell, like Czechoslovakia, as it was then. I went to Hungary, went to Poland, and that really affected me in a, in a very positive way of, like, just as a child, 
just being so excited about these new places with these crazy new foods and and new sounds and smells and new currency. I love playing with the 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 Polish slotty as it was at the time. There was about a million slotty to the pound. I mean, it was it was crazy. We were all slotty millionaires at the time. Um, they use the euro now, by the way. Right. Um, but yeah, that was such a, a formative experience that I had and like with everything else, like just being born in Liverpool, like being born white and male and middle class and all the other benefits I had, I do feel extraordinarily privileged. I read a I read an article the other day and it was explaining about this thing of, you know, should should we feel bad about the slave trade? And I come from Liverpool, which profited from the slave trade massively. I mean my school, my old school was was founded by a couple of slavers. And yeah, I should feel guilty about it. Not because I did it myself, but because it's my responsibility as someone who is, you know, born into privilege to help out people who aren't. And yeah, damn right, that's my responsibility. I think the analogy they made was, it's not your fault that it snows, but it's your responsibility to clear the path, essentially. Uh, And that's something that I think uh, travel, especially going to all the places that I did, it really drove that home to me in a way that I probably never thought of it quite that way before before I went on that journey. I like that a lot. Let's uh, transition for a second. So I'm assuming that while you were traveling, you would have to take some really long bus ride. So how would you mentally prepare for a 16-hour bus ride, a 24-hour you know train ride throughout something? How would you prepare mentally? And then um, off of that, do you have any self-care rituals that you practice to kind of like keep yourself in check? I really don't mind slumming it and I've never, you know, I'll get on a bus and I'll always have something to do while I'm on the bus, whether it's chat to the other people on the bus, which always makes the journey go faster. Or just simply looking out the window. I mean, if I'm in another country, taking all that in, the landscapes and the you know, the, the mountains and the lakes and all the things you go past. I mean, that's wonderful. It's like the best screensaver you could possibly imagine. <laughs> it's like it's a fascinating TV show going past your window. Um, and then I could write or I could read or I could listen to music. So when I saw that I was going to have a very long bus journey, and I've had some exceptionally long bus journeys, we're talking 36 hours on a bus, you know, we stop for breaks, we get food, we they, they don't... They don't because you have some movies on the on the screen. Um, it was never something that I thought, you know, okay, I'm 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 gonna have to <laughs> I'm gonna have to prepare for this. I'm gonna have to get you know in the right mental frame for it. I just kind of let it happen, and I liked the fact that in in my journey there were times when I couldn't be passive. Like I really had to take the bull by the horns and make sure that I, you know, I, I, I got on that bus or got on that cargo ship or, you know, got to that place at a certain time. Whereas when you're on a bus, you're kind of giving up your control in a way. And it's quite nice. It's quite nice just to sit there and be passive and let someone else do all the hard work. I, I, I sometimes enjoy the journey more than I actually right. enjoy the destination. And I get that. I know that's a cliche, but, right. you know, it's, it's, uh, What's, um... it's true for me. I, I I usually had a good time on the buses, especially traveling around Africa. And I mean, it was a hoot. Right. <laughs> the bus would break down 17 times. We'd be traveling on dirt road in the, in the wet season. And, you know, by the end of it, 
that the entire the entirety of the bus on you each other and all eating together like slept together not that way but you know what I mean yeah. <laughs> it's just we were one big family we're like you know say goodbye giving each other hugs you know what, a, what an adventure <laughs> right it is such a great way to like connect with people because especially when you take breaks. When you get on the bus, you take a mental note of like kind of who's around you, like, oh, you see one person and you kind of identify all of them. And then if you're on a bus journey that has like maybe three breaks along the way, you kind of have this sense of, you create your own tribe. Do you know what I mean? You're like, the tribe's not here yet. You know, like someone's missing and people kind of get that sixth sense and kind of like look out for each other in that way, which I always found was like really, instinctual in a really you know it's very human of us what is one of your most memorable bus rides <laughs> oh crikey there was a bus ride that I had in Kenya in which they didn't have a seat for me so I was sitting on a on a, a wooden stool and this was just after I'd reached South Sudan and I actually did a telephone conversation with CNN on my cell phone sitting on the on this little tiny wooden stool of this bus thundering through southern Kenya. Um, that was that was just very exciting. And it got to the point where I said, oh, I've got to go. The police have just gone on board the bus. So I had to hang up the, 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 the interview because the police had come on board because you're not supposed to sit in the in the, in the the aisle. And that was that was quite an entertaining bus ride. Um, oh there was uh, a few hairy uh, shared taxi rides. So in West Africa, you have these set class or bush, bush taxis that they have there. They're designed to take seven passengers, but uh, for some freaking reason they take 16 <laughs> and, a, and possibly a goat on the roof and two people in the, in, the, in the trunk. I was sharing, I was in Guinea and I was sharing the front seat with another guy. So I, you know, I, I, and he had the side by the door. So I was sort of, you know, with my, my, uh, one of my butt cheeks on the on the handbrake, which the driver had helpfully put a towel over, but it didn't do very much, especially as we were bumping over potholes. And this journey to Conakry was supposed to take 12 hours or something. It ended up taking two days. I slept in this car like for two nights, sharing the front seat with somebody else. And it was just hilarious. I mean, you know, it was one of those things where you just, you, you, you have to laugh or you'll go mad. And we got to the, we got, finally got to Conakry, and it's about three o'clock in the morning, and we got stopped by the police at a checkpoint, as we had done all, all through the journey, and every town and village we'd come through. We got stopped by the police, and they were, they were, they were angry because we had two people sitting in the front seats, and we were like, well, we just came all the way from the border of Mali, and we've been through a lot of checkpoints, and none of them seemed to care. They took everybody out of the taxi, including uh, two ladies who had um, small babies, with them and they said, um, right, you've got to pay a fine and if you don't pay a fine, all of you can spend the night in this jail cell. And they're looking at me while they say this and I just think, how much, how much, how much do you want? And they said, how much have you got? And they took all the guinea francs that I had. Luckily I had an emergency $100 bill in my shoe, which they didn't find, but they basically took all my money kicked me out of the police checkpoint three in the morning <laughs> the capital of Guinea which isn't the safest of places and I was like I'm probably the only tourist in the country right now why would you do this to me um, 
<laughs> That's the, 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 the driver of the taxi allowed me to sleep in the taxi that night. And then in the morning, he put me on another taxi to, on the, the fairly short ride from Conakry to the border with Sierra Leone. Crossing Sierra Leone, and as I came in, it was a time when swine flu was in the news, and they wanted to check everyone's temperature. So I had to go and see a doctor. Went into the room. I was with an American girl. He looked at our passports. He spoke to her. Said, "Yeah, that's fine." Looked at mine. He said, "Oh my God, you're British!" And he gave me a hug. He actually gave me a hug and said, "Welcome to Sierra Leone." And I was just like, "Okay, this makes it all worthwhile now." Wow. <laughs> so uh, message to any any it's... people working for the TSA who are listening to this. Uh, give people a hug when they when they come into Houston Airport and oh. don't think much better of America for sure. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. So okay, so this is a good transition. My perspective on borders has shifted. How has your perception of borders changed and do you find them necessary? Do you find them to be to be actually very helpful? You know, like and and what does it kind of talk to say metaphorically about us? I think they're arbitrary and stupid. Thank I you. Think, like Europe. Europe, you get a, you, you can travel all the way around Europe. You can go into Belgium, go into France, still France. You can go into Luxembourg, then you can go into Germany, then you can go into Switzerland, then you can go into Slovenia. It's still Slovenia. Do you know what I mean? It's like, just because there's no border control doesn't change the fabric of, of a country. And one of the things that um, I, you know, obviously I've crossed every border in the world. And that is something of an achievement because it's very difficult to do that, especially in places like Western Central Africa where you need visas and Central Asia where you need visas and other places, you know, where you, you, you can't get in without a, right. a lot of paperwork. The reason why I feel it's a nonsense is, is this. The USA is 50 countries. Effectively, it's 50 countries. Louisiana is as different to New York as... Portugal is from Wales. It's a completely different place. You might they might speak the same language, only just, but you know, it it's it, you could see it as a separate country. Economically so different. Yet America's all one country. So you have three hundred and nineteen million people who have the freedom of movement around fifty states and Puerto Rico and American Samoa and Guam and the Northern Marianas and the US Virgin Islands. That's fifty five states and territories that you can go to and you don't have to ask anyone's permission you don't need a passport, you don't need a green card to work, you don't need a working visa you don't have to fill out a form you can just go and that's been the case for a very long time now and America's still despite some of its problems in terms of uh, some of its social problems that it's facing now and some of its political problems it's still the richest country in the world by a mile and that's because Whenever America has a problem, like the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, the people from Oklahoma could legally move. They weren't refugees. They weren't fleeing. They were fleeing death, just as much as the people in Syria are fleeing death right now and coming into Europe. But they were allowed to move. And okay, you know, you've read The Grapes of Wrath. You know they were given a particularly warm welcome in California, and they were made to do shit menial jobs hardly any money but the choice was that or death the way the world stacked at the moment is there is no choice you either put your babies your children on an unsecure unsafe boat to take them over the mediterranean sea 
on the chance that you might be able to get a better life. And you have to run through checkpoints, you have to face people with machine guns, you have to climb over fences to get your children safe, which is a nonsense. And the thing is, if America has come out of this as a heterogeneous nation, the richest country in the world, because it's got no borders, then that signals to me the fact that borders are a terrible, terrible idea. And people will say, well, hang on, won't everyone just flock to another country? Well, no, because the more open you make these places, the more people actually don't want to leave home because you can actually help make their country better by allowing people free access. Maybe one person in the family, yeah, moves to the UK or France or Germany and works there and sends money back. That actually helps their country. And I'll tell you what, most people I've met personally traveling, and you know, we see this time and time again, most people don't want to leave their home. They like it, they're proud of it. It takes a lot for people to get off their arse and actually, you know, I'm talking about holidays here, I'm talking about actually moving your entire family to another country where you don't speak the language, where you don't know if you've got a job, where you don't have any kind of security that you have at home, you don't have the family network, you don't have your neighbors, you don't have your friends that you grew up with, they're all gone. To do that usually takes a big trauma, whether it's the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma or whether it's a war in Syria, it's the same thing. They're escaping death. And so for me, especially in the kind of, again, I'm gonna say it, but privileged position that I'm born into and that I've had all my life and has allowed me to do what I've done traveling so much, because I couldn't have traveled this much with an Iranian passport. Or I couldn't have traveled this much with, you know, with a, a, a Nepalese passport. Or right. Many of the other passports of the world, I don't think I get very far. But there's a Barbian passport. I had a friend from Egypt who tried to come and visit me here in Panama, and they wouldn't let him in the country. So for me, coming from this position where I, you know, I'm, I've, I'm, I feel privileged to be able to travel so much, I don't see why other people can't. And to shut borders and to build walls is the actions of a coward. They're yeah. someone who is so afraid of the other these outsiders. I would love to know your opinions about like the preservation of a culture and tradition versus the ability to take a culture and kind of like play with it and fuse it and you know to be able to make like Korean burritos or you know have a fashion sense that blends all time yeah. you know like how do you feel about about the preservation of culture versus the play of culture? I have no problem with the play of culture and, and fusing all these different cultures together and taking the best of what you enjoy. What I don't like is when people use the word culture or tradition to hide behind some awful things they're doing, whether that's female genital mutilation in North Africa or whether it's marching down Kilbaki Road in, in Northern Ireland each year or whether it's um, only a gun in America because it's a cultural thing. And, and only a gun in America is a cultural thing. Um, it's as cultural as a cup of tea in the UK. That's not to say it can't be licensed and regulated and the fact that people say, well, no, you can't do that because you're infringing my culture, which is what they're basically saying when they say about the Second Amendment, is, is 
dead wrong, and that's something that I would like to see the end of in my lifetime. And let's have a look at the positive aspects of culture. Yeah. The dance, the music, the food, the languages, which I think deserve to be preserved. And one of the things that I find that we're doing really, well, really, really well is with food. Like, food is great. You, get, you, you walk down the street in New York or London or Melbourne, and you'll have loads of different food from all over the world. And the people who run these restaurants are from the countries that they cook the food from, and they care passionately about their cuisine and it's a real awesome thing and I've got no problem with that whatsoever. Absolutely. One of the things I, where I feel like culture is under threat globally, there's a couple of things actually, there's, there's, there's languages which are dying out which I, I really feel need to be at least recorded and preserved especially in places like Papua New Guinea where there's 800 living languages but they're dying out because only old people speak them. One of the other things I'm really passionate about is architecture. Because from my experience of traveling to all the countries in the world, I haven't seen hardly any, any at all, architecture for the last 50 years that I would regard as beautiful or, or reflective of the culture from which it sprang. I.e., every building seems to be made of concrete and glass. I've seen buildings that are impressive because they're very tall, but 50 years ago, you could drop someone in any major city in the world and they'd look around and say, I'm in Amsterdam, I'm in Paris, I'm in Delhi, I'm in Shanghai, because of the architecture, because you'd be able to look around and go, yeah, this is definitely where I am. These days, you could take a building from any of those cities that's been built in the last 50 years and drop it into another one, and no one will bat an eyelid. Buildings traditionally were a reflection of the culture that built them. They were built with local materials, local architects and this is something that I feel like with the advent of, of new technology i.e. 3D printers that the excuse of oh well there's no stonemasons anymore or it costs too much we can't pay people to build these things is is absolute nonsense of course we can still build these things as 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 a race as the human race we've got more money than ever before so I feel like instead of these billionaires spending their money on a slightly bigger yacht or a skyscraper, whatever, mm. I'd much rather see them spend their money on prestige buildings that look absolutely beautiful. And it breaks my heart when I build things out of stone and brick. When you, when you build things out of stone and brick and wood, they have a story. There's a story embedded in the actual materials that you build with. You can look at a piece of wood and say where in the world it came from. You can say how old the tree was. You can say what type of tree it was. There's a story there. You can look at a piece of granite and, and find out which quarry it came from and how long ago it was cut. There's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a history embedded in, in the fabric of old, old buildings, whereas buildings that are made of glass and concrete have no memory. And so I find it... It irks me. I feel irked <laughs> that whereas with other parts of our culture, like languages, and we've allowed architecture to become globalized in the most just kind of boring way, I guess. I'm just bored by it all. It's not exciting to me. It's it's just 
power nor the building. Um, yeah, I I agree completely. I, 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 I don't think I'm an old fuddy duddy saying this. I'm really not. <laughs> I just care passionately about what we leave for the next generation. I don't want it to be all something that you can put on digital media. You know, stories, movies, pictures, everything. I want, I want something solid. And visiting some of these ancient sites, Machu Picchu, the pyramids, you know, um, the Taj Mahal isn't that ancient, but, you know, it's absolutely incredible. It just makes you think, you know, what, what physical things are we actually leaving? Because I tell you, every single building that was built in the last 10 years in the UK will be demolished in my lifetime. I guarantee it because no one really cares. It's it's disposable architecture. Yeah, it's a example of like Western cultural capital, and like every country I've been to, I can go to a McDonald's, and they're starting to have that same. Because in in America, it's a lot of like cookie cutter buildings and houses and food and all of that stuff, and you can start to see that. It was unsettling to see that trickle across like the rest of the, of the thing, world. One of my, my favourite travel books is a book by John Steinbeck called Travels with Charlie, in which he travels around the US, the beginning of the 60s, with his pig poodle called Charlie. And it's just great. It's, it's a snapshot of America as it was. And he laments the fact that he's you know stopping at these little diners on the side of the road. And he's finding that they're all becoming the same. The same burgers, the same napkins, the same... Knives and forks, and he talks a bit about yeah, you know, you need the variety. You need to have a bad burger to appreciate a good burger. You need to have some variety, and I find it very uh, just bizarre. I, I, I don't know. It, it, it feels to me like totalitarian. It feels like communism for all burgers to be the same <laughs> everywhere you go. I want. The variety. I want the anarchy. I want. I want an anarchy of burgers. I want to have ones that taste different and are made in different ways and different ovens. I don't want them all to be cooked the same. That for me is not what life's about. Life's about variety, and I understand that it, it, it is quite nice to be able to go somewhere and think, "Oh, great! There's a KFC. I know I'm going to get KFC at this KFC." I get that, and as a as a backpacker, I have to admit there have been times when I've just been I, I, I just want something that I know, and I just want you know I just want that familiarity. But take that away, and it's not like that I suffer that much. Yeah, at the same time, I don't want to see the food of the world homogenized like the the architecture of the world has become because it would be a huge loss right. to humanity. Right. Oh, I love that. And you spoke about that the last time that we that we spoke, and I'm glad that you brought it up again. Okay, so I have a different question for you. Can you tell me a time when you had help from a stranger? <laughs> oh, so many times. I know. Um, it happened to me pretty much every day of my journey that someone would come to my aid. I see people were helpful everywhere I went. I'm just thinking of all these times and people just pointed me in the right direction or offered to, you know, when I was in, uh, when I was in 
Kyrgyzstan, the, the shared taxi driver who had, who had driven me from Bishkek down to Osh, he actually took me home with him and uh, his wife made me spaghetti bolognese and I had spaghetti bolognese on a, <laughs> at his house with his children and it was just amazing and, was, and then he was like, okay, you need to go and he took me to the bus station where I needed to go to continue my journey. He was just a, he was just a taxi driver, um, which is remarkable. But my favourite, favourite story, which I love telling and I've told before, Oh, and I'll tell again, was when I was in Iran on an overnight bus. There was a little old Persian grandmother who, when we were sitting down, she walked down the aisle and she waved to me and smiled, and then she sat down. The bus started, we're driving, I've got my, I've got my iPod in my ears, so I'm listening to music, looking out the window, and she kind of turns around, and I can see her between the, the gap in the seats, and she kind of waves to me, and I wave back, and she's on the phone talking in Farsi, and she hands me her phone, and I take the phone off. I don't really know what to do at first, because I think, you know, does she want me to show how to do something on the phone? And she's motioning me to put it to my ear. I put it to my ear. The guy on the other end said, hi, my name is Saeed Hussein. Um, and I'm an English teacher here in Iran, and perfect English. And he said, you're sitting behind my grandmother. And I said, oh, wow, awesome, you know, hello, granny, you know, and I'm ready to understand. He said, listen, she's called me because she's concerned about you. And I was just like, okay, well, why? Why is she concerned about me? And don't forget, I'm traveling on my own in Iran, which, you know, I have, I have positive experiences of Iran, but obviously it's, it's got a bit of a bad rap as far as the world's, uh, the world's perception of it is concerned. Um, and he says, well, she's concerned that the bus gets in very early tomorrow morning at like 5 a.m. or something, and you won't have anywhere to go and nobody to make you breakfast. So she's called me to ask you, in English, if it's okay with you, if she takes you home with her so she can make you breakfast. And I was just like, oh, my God, of course. And it was, it was, it was one of those moments where you just overcome with the generosity of spirit, and you just think, well, do you know what? The world's not such a bad place, and humans aren't that bad. Obviously, the bad ones stick in your mind a bit better, a bit more than the people who didn't cause you any harm. But at the end of the day, that really restored my faith in humanity, and, and, and made me very optimistic. The fact that it happened in Iran as well, this country that all my life I've been told is this dangerous country, it's run by mad ayatollahs who, you know, just want to kill everyone in the West, and to actually go there and experience that level of hospitality and friendship is just breathtaking, and it, and it really, it really helped me reorder my perception of the entire world oh i love that that's such you yeah you've told that story and it's such a good example of random acts of kindness coming out of nowhere and i've also had like a few times where there's been someone who doesn't speak english who is concerned about my well-being at that moment and has called like their niece or their nephew or son or daughter or whatever to speak with me on the phone to be like look at my mother is worried about you right now and it's just like it's so touching you know to just like be observed in that way too and to just have this like extension of of kindness from a total stranger and it's just like there's nothing like that you know like your mom can be nice to you but it's nothing like coming out of literally thin air sometimes 
So that's just, oh, that's such a good, such a good story. Okay, I have another question. Do you have any adventures that you look up to or admire or, like, whose story is kind of your favorite? As far as travel stories are concerned, I mean, there's a lady from Ghana called Princess, and she's a mother of six, and she's trying to go to every country in the world, and she's up to about country 57 or something at the moment. She's got a beautiful blog. She writes books about her travels. And for me, that is the, the, the epitome of someone with a Ghanaian passport, a, a woman with a Ghanaian passport, breaking down these boundaries, these invisible boundaries that exist, as well as physical boundaries that exist, and going and seeing the world for themselves is, is so inspirational to me, and I, I want that to be inspirational to others, because I, I just think it's wonderful and amazing. That is so badass. That's like, does she take her kids with her? No, no. She travels alone. Wow. And you know, she is, she's, she's a badass. Wow. <laughs> and one of the things that I really try and champion as much as possible is, is female travel. Because obviously there are certain concerns that a woman would have traveling over that of a man which I completely understand but the idea that a woman shouldn't travel and I, I get I get emails of people who of women who want to travel young women who, who say that they want to go traveling around the US but their parents won't let them because they think it's too dangerous and this is something that I feel like we need to really address because it's based on paternalism, it's based on sexism, it's based on misogyny, and the idea that the world has to be closed to what half the world's population is is something that I find quite uncomfortable. And and I've got a lot of friends, a lot of friends who travel, female solo travellers who I really respect and really think are absolutely awesome. Friends who have travelled to Yemen alone, I've got female friends who have travelled around Saudi Arabia alone, travelled through Iran alone, and obviously, yes, you do need to take more precautions. Yeah. You do need to be more savvy than a, a, a male would in, your, in the same situations. But at the same time, something bad could happen just as, just as easily if you stay at home. Yeah. And when you look at things like sexual abuse, the vast majority of cases, it's someone that you know. Yeah. There's not a stranger, you know, sitting on a street corner in Mexico waiting for you to walk past so they can rape you. I mean, if, it, if there is, it's highly unlikely. Yeah. And so knowing that and having a good, I think what helps when you're traveling as well, just for peace of mind, is having a good grasp of statistics. Yeah. <laughs> you're sitting on a bus, the driver's driving like a maniac, just try and just think like okay what are the likelihoods it's not that great okay so i think we're gonna start wrapping up a little bit out of all the countries you've been to which you have been to every single country which one surprised you the most well it's gonna be iran <laughs> the reasons that i was talking about earlier it wasn't just the incident with the granny on the bus inviting me back for breakfast iran was a place that all my life i've been told 
was a very conservative, deeply religious, uh, very cold, personal country where the, the leaders were very mean. And to actually go there and experience it myself and, and, and experience the warmth and the hospitality and the curiosity and, and the just the, the general awesomeness of the people I met there. I met a I met a, a guy from Belgium who had been there for 28 days. So I've been here for 28 days and every single night he'd been there, someone had offered to put him up for the night. He'd travelled all over the country, he'd never stayed at a hotel once because always someone had said to him, hey, do you want to come and stay at our place tonight? We've got a spare room, we'll make it up for you. And I was just like, wow. So if, if, if I can do my little bit to help put Iran back on the travel map where it used to be in the 1970s before the revolution and everything else happened, um, I'd be very glad to help out with that and surprise because I'd love more people to go and just see what it's like for themselves. I've also heard, that's amazing that you say that, I've also heard really amazing. The yeah. last time that you spoke, you did talk about Bolivia a lot too, and on how crazy Bolivia is as a country. Do you have anything? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Any quick Bolivia, Bolivia stories? <laughs> well, just if you want to be entertained. It's a bit dangerous, okay? If someone goes there on my recommendation and then gets themselves into trouble, I'm really sorry, but like... Bolivia is just the land that health and safety forgot, and you can do things in Bolivia that you can't do anywhere else on Earth. You can run around the salt plains in the uni where you're, you're, up on, you're up in the Andes on these vast white plains of salt, and when it rains a bit, you get like an inch of water on the salt, and it, and it makes the whole thing a vast mirror. It's the most mind-bending experience of you could possibly imagine everything's perfectly reflected the skies the mountains yourself are perfectly reflected in the water you can go to the Potosi silver mine where it's a working silver mine it's been working for 400 years you go down there the miners are working they're blowing stuff up they say don't touch the walls it's coming in arsenic don't touch that bare wire it's 110 volts. Don't watch out. There's a big and there's a big hole. There's a big hole and it goes down 100 meters. And you look at you drop a penny down it. You don't hear it hit the bottom for about 30 seconds. You're like, okay, are you, do you maybe have a barrier around this hole that just goes straight down here. And you you get out and you go to the the the, the miners shop where the miners who all work in the collective mine, the unionized mine, they buy their mining equipment like their pickaxes and. Oh, they're dynamite. Yeah, you can just walk into a shop and buy dynamite like your wily e. coyote. And if that's not mad enough, you, when you're in the capital, La Paz, there's a prison there called San Pedro Prison. And I don't know if they still do it, but when I was there, you could pay a guy at the gate, an inmate, to give you a guided tour of the jail. And the jail was like a little town, a walled city within the city where people, when they first got there, they slept on the gymnasium floor, and the more money they had, they could buy better cells. And eventually, if you were, you know, really wealthy or whatever, you could have a, a penthouse apartment within the jail with satellite TV and a refrigerator and, and pizza delivery. You could bribe the guards to go out for the night if you want the night on the town. As long as you came back in the morning, they were cool about it. It was the maddest thing. And then I went down the Camino del Muerte, the, the road of death, or the youngest road, uh, which, which ran 
down from La Paz into the Amazon Basin. The most dangerous road in the world. It was it, it, it's a, it was a dirt track um, against the precipice of, you know, the sheer drop-off to the left. And the way it's supposed to be is in the morning, the uh, vehicles can go down, and in the afternoon, the vehicles can go up. But sometimes someone really wants to come up in the morning, and you've got this kind of single dirt track that's kind of cut out from the from the mountain not very well and, you know, liable to uh, landslides and things like that. And you're trying to squeeze past it like an inch, an inch on your left, and you're, you know, I was on the left of the bus, looking, you know, not daring to look over the edge because I thought it might tip the bus that little extra bit, and we'll all fall down and die. Um, they call it a load of death for a very good reason, and that takes you down into the Amazon basin, which is a, a fantastic area in Bolivia because you get to do all the things that you would do if you were on an Amazon adventure in in Brazil itself, but you you get to do it on the Rio Beni, which is a tributary of the Amazon. You get to see the, the pink dolphins, you get to swim with piranhas, yes. You get to hunt anacondas, not to kill them, but to get photos with them. Uh, you get to uh, see all, all the spiders and the, 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 uh, the flora, the fauna, the, the little cute, tiny little monkeys that come over to the howler monkeys. It's the whole experience of being in the jungle for like hardly anything. I mean, Bolivia's really cheap. And, just like the maddest country on earth, and I just I, I just can't recommend it enough. If you like adventure, if you like a nice comfortable bed and a nice warm shower that doesn't electrocute you periodically, don't go to Bolivia. But if you're for a bit of an adventure, I, I just it, it's it's always going to have a special place in my heart because it's just nuts. Oh my god, that's so good. I'm so pissed that I didn't really know anything about Bolivia when I was so close in Peru, but um, I've heard... Uh, uh, it's not going anywhere. I know, it's, it's not. not. I I can... Nope, it's not going yeah, anywhere. Right, right, right. I love that so much. So the last question that I like, ending things on, can you tell me a quote or a phrase that you carry with you? when you're traveling or to kind of like that keeps you going yeah um my my favorite thing about travel which really resonates with me now because it was my favorite video game that i played in the 90s and it was a lucasarts game called grim fandango it really resonated with me because my journey around the world took four years and it felt many places very similar to manny calavera's journey in the video game and at the very end, you're finally on the number nine train, which takes you straight into the ninth underworld. And you're finally with Meche, the, the, the woman that you love. And she says to you, are you worried about you know where we might end up once we go through the portal? And he says, one thing I've learned on this journey is no one knows what's waiting at the end of the line, so we might as well enjoy the trip. And God, that makes me want to just punch the air and go, hell yeah! <laughs> Preacher to the choir. So, ah, that was perfect. That was great. The reason I think you originally agreed to talk to me, because I, like, went up to you and was like, oh, my God, I've heard about your travels and everything, and I, I think we had only had, like, a quick conversation before that. 
but you were like, the reason I'll talk to you is because you yeah. understand the importance of stories. And I was like, oh, yes, like this person is cut out of the same cloth, you know, it's great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. This has been incredible and it's great to be with a fellow storyteller. Oh, thank you. It was, it was a real pleasure. <laughs> Take care. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Few people are given the opportunity to make the world a better place, and even fewer actually take advantage of it. But Graham has used his celebrity to inform us in the Western world about the issues and problems that are happening on a local and global level in places we would rarely think about. He is active on social media and is starting multiple new projects. However, after all that he's seen and all that he's done, all the people he's talked to. He's finally found his own little slice of paradise, secluded from all the noise of the world. In our next episode, we finally arrive to our last country, Peru, and work at a chocolate shop. We become roomies with Jen, an intrepid solo female traveler from Toronto who has cunningly united her love of travel and her degree. And then also always trying to find work abroad and the key is to work while you travel, I think. So working for a cruise line and working as an English teacher and now doing work away. Cool. It's always enabled me to save money while I'm traveling, which totally. not a lot of people can do. Yeah, that's totally true. Next time on Strangers Abroad.